Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Woodzik, they, them pronouns. This is episode 136 with Megan Anderson Doyle. I let her jump the line in front of Megan, excuse me, Emma Messenger and Jeff Parker because it's her birthday today. So happy birthday, Megan literally the nicest and most talented costume designer I have ever worked with. Lisa Lance, from your time at Luther College, you are a close second if you happen to listen to this podcast. Hannah Schnabel would be third, just so y'all know. Because when you're a larger actor who is coded as female, you get a lot of weird comments from costumers, I hate to say. But Megan is so amazing. Her home is ridiculously beautiful, and if you are looking for a redesign of your creative studio or office space at home, you have got to reach out to Megan and see if she'll send you pictures of her studio space. It is gorgeous! And make sure you follow her on social media, and make sure you follow Phyllis Diller, her dog. I'm a dog parent now, y'all. You cannot stop me. You might hear River in the background here. Funny story. Got River a chicken today, a whole chicken, and (laughs) he fell asleep with his paw touching the chicken in the car, just touching it, and so I have a picture of him trying to stay awake while he is putting his paw on a whole rotisserie chicken. Um, So there's good in the world. Stay safe. Stay at home listen to podcasts, do all those social media challenges that have looked interesting but you felt intimidated to do, it's a great time to up your social media game. If you need pointers, reach out to me. I love you all. Stay safe. Please enjoy episode 136 with Megan Anderson Toy. I'm so excited. This has been months in the making. Yes. To have Megan Anderson Doyle on the podcast. This is the first one where you're going to hear the sound of river in the background, but he's pretty quiet, so it's probably just going to be a squeaking of a troll doll or something of that nature. Megan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So we met on a little fun, easy to say, and even easier to spell play named Toxoplasmosis. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And written by Shawn Michael Cummings for the off-center, bite-sized an evening of micro theater that was done at Book Bar. Um, and so I, <laughs> I played a veterinary assistant, um, and then what, al- I also played an animal. What animal did I play, Megan? You played a life-size grizzly bear. <laughs> <laughs> so, you hear that you have an actor who's playing a veterinary assistant and a bear. I'm guessing it was the most fantastical, maybe with the exception of outside the room, mm-hmm. um, how do you go about making a bear costume? Well, it was really funny. I know that when we were kind of going through the scripts, Charlie Miller had come to me and said, hey, we've done Winter's Tale, <laughs> so we have a bear, correct? And like I, the most iconic stage direction yeah. of all time, right? Yeah. Exit pursued by bear. Yeah. Okay. So we were. I was like, yes, we have a bear. However, the actor that wore it was um, over six feet tall. <laughs> and... <laughs> The bear costume was built to have like a speaker in the chest, and it was, I mean, it was amazing. It was like drywall stilts for arms, and 
Kevin so, Copenhaver built it, and it was just absolutely incredible. So it's very similar to, if folks have seen the adaptation of Frozen, what I imagine Sven to be built like. Yes, yeah, it was kind of a puppet around a body, and so right. Kevin Copenhaver designed and built it, and it was absolutely stunning, and so I was like, well, technically we have that, but it's not really going to work for um, any of the that, actors. That was very, very young. Any of the actors that we are considering using for this <laughs> entire project, as well as the fact that it's going to be like in an office in a bookstore. Right. <laughs> not on a big Because that's site-specific. Yeah. Immersive-ish. Yeah. So we, we did a little kind of... Dis- Charlie and I did some discussing. We were like, okay, well, we can we can find a way to make it work. And so there was some creative cobbling, and we ended up using the bear head yes. along with, um, since the bear was at the vet, we decided that the paws and a hospital gown gave us kind of that humor that fit the script. And Absolutely appropriate. <laughs> Quite possibly, because I hate, I hate, because of my profound anxiety, I hate quick changes with a passion. And so, to go into a project, I think only for Sean Michael Cummings would I do this. <laughs> go into and Meredith Brenda, I go into a project knowing that not only would there be a quick change, there would be fourteen quick changes every single night because right. we're doing the show on a loop. I actually have a paper towel where I literally I've done a tally mark for every single quick change nice. that we did. <laughs> um, but oh my God, the staff with. Denver Center, I had the most amazing dressers who were just like, we had it down to a science. Um, we had it down to a science so much so, which I don't know if you know this. Do you know what happened? Do you know that there was a night where Bernadette got sick? Yes. So, funny story. One of the one and only times I had mom clothes just in, <laughs> in my bag. <laughs> Because I'm a fan of Leopard Print, and so I remember, because I think I had a job interview that day, and so I had, like, a very, like, maroon, uh, maroon leopard print, like, three-quarter sleeve something <laughs> in my bag, and, because Bernadette, who was playing the mom, they went on, and after the second one, they're like, I don't... Not gonna happen. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do it, and so we're like, well, what... Sweet Jesus, what do we do? Luckily, we, we sort of felt like we were the kids in the playpen, like the younger non-equity actors who were literally outside where the other action was happening. Um, but we had, I mean, we had so much fun, Rakim Lawrence, Bernadette, and myself. And so Rakim, Emery, Bernadette, and I, and our dresser, who I forget her name, she was Lisa, Lisa who is the sweetest human in the world. So we're all like, we all like huddled up and we're like, what are we going to do? And Rakim looks at me, and he's like, Wizzik's got it. And I'm like, um, yeah. <laughs> and then the second thing that happened was Lisa looks at me, and she was like, you look at your script during this next run. Because <laughs> I'm sort of like in my head, but sort of not in my head. Because we, what had to happen for that to work is that Emery, who was our PA, then had to step into the quick change oh, that's for the right. last three things but because Lisa is such a badass and because we had the quick change down to a science and because 
my character had a clipboard, we were able to successfully <laughs> like make, make this switch. And I remember the first time we did it, because I did it without book in hand, so it was just like, Rahim saw Bernadette go off, and about 90 seconds later, I had like, thrown my scrubs off, put the mom gear on, grabbed the purse, and I remember Lisa looking at me, and she was like, Godspeed. <laughs> and it was like, that first run, it was like 12.45, and then by the end of the night, we had gotten it back up to like 14, nice. 14 and a half minutes. But for those, what, for those like 28 audience members, they got quite the interesting <laughs> show. But we were talking a little bit before we started recording. Um, so that head was quite heavy. Yes. And <clears throat> I, am an, I am profoundly blind without my glasses. And so there was... Uh, the headpiece was sliding down a little bit, and I remember I was so impressed by how elegantly and swiftly you fixed it. What did you do? Can you explain yeah. how you fixed it so effortlessly? So we just kind of looked at what the problem was, and I um, am from the theory of like the answers in this house. Yes. I really feel like same. Yes. Like growing up and everything like anytime there was like a project or something, my mom was always like, "Okay, we can figure it out. We can yeah. find it." And yeah. you know, and so that became like we laugh about that now that we're always like, "Oh, the answers in this house." And so we were yes. like, "Oh, we just need a baseball cap and the brim will keep it up." And yeah. so we ended up going across the street to the pizza place. Literally across the street to Denver Biscuit so, Company. That yeah. sold some baseball caps. We got a baseball cap and we were like, don't take the price tag off. We'll see if this works. <laughs> <laughs> and it did. And we and, made history. And I bought it because that is like, <laughs> that has my blood, sweat, and tears in it. Um, I want to talk with you about a more recent project that you're doing. Yeah. Because part of the reason I reached out to you is that John Ward, this incredibly fascinating interview with you about uh, costume design. Like, how do you costume design for the not-too-distant future? Yeah. Right? Do you want to talk about that project? Yeah, again? so we just recently closed 2050, which is a new play that the Denver Center premiered by Tony Menezes, um, and it was directed by Henry Godinez, and it was a wonderful project to be part of. Um, and when we kind of first met, I would say it was about nine months before we opened the show, we had a design conference, um, and all the design staff and the director met, um, and we just kind of went through the script and talked about, like, what do we think the future looks like? And, you know, we talked about, like, what was happening maybe 30 years ago right. versus what's happening now and kind of where we see that jumping off in the future. Um, and a lot of it really just came down to technology. You know, that 30 right. years ago, like, cell phones were a concept, and, like, you know, car phones existed, but it wasn't something that everyone had. And so now the fact that, like, you know, your phone is almost an appendage, you know, for some right. folks, it yeah. was like we really felt like that technology component was going to kind of remain constant and be a big part of it. And we talked about how, like, Alexa is present and everything and, like, what what might that look like in the future yeah. and... Um, there's a very specific note in the script that said this place takes place in 2050, but and there should be a nod towards the future, but it should never pull us out of the action of the story. So when mm. we were kind of thinking about like how we create this world that they live in, you know, we didn't feel like it was like stainless steel furniture and you know right. like space age jumpsuits. That there had to you be mean kind CSI of, like, in like 15 <laughs> exactly. years. So we kind of felt like there needed to be kind of a buy-in 
um, about like how we saw this family existing in 2050. And we really felt like the uniform that society kind of prescribes for different professions kind of played into that. So politicians wear suits and men's suits have not changed really all that much, you know, since the 1900s. Right. So we kind of felt like that was definitely a place that politicians would be recognizable. And that was certainly something we were interested in kind of keeping into. And then we talked about there's a sheriff in the show. And so we felt like that was another uniform opportunity. And unlike today, where there's kind of this like unisex notion of a uniform, but it's really male pattern. Oh, absolutely. Traditional male body. And so Very the, angular and yeah. Yeah, and it's not even I mean, I feel like it's just like the patterns for them are so kind of basic and yeah. you know that it they're made out of materials that are easy to launder and things like that, but not necessarily easy to wear. So we felt like the technology for that was gonna be durable stretch materials and that it would be form fitting and more like active wear rather than kind right. of like military suiting. So that was kind of how we took that component into the future. Um <sighs> And then to keep with the uniform theme, we really felt like the the daughter um, would have been in private school. You know that that was definitely yeah. the status of that family is that it's she privilege. would be in private sure. school, and so private school kind of comes with a uniform, and that also bought us a lot of um, leeway for some of the the scene changes that were um, kind of cinematic in a way. Mm. That you know because she had a uniform, we could you know take a sweater vest off and add a cardigan or a blazer right. and kind of mix it up without having full changes. And then because she's a teenager, we really felt like, you know, there would definitely be that kind of, like, push to, um, there would be this kind of push to, like, make make her own say in, in what things would be. And so there would definitely be, like, some shoe choices and maybe a fashion watch. And right. then she has a backpack. And so we kind of got so some of those teenage pieces. choices and, and push those into kind of the futuristic look. Do so. you think like, we're in, I feel like we're having this moment... As someone who, like, is a huge fan of Drag Race, and um, I feel like I learned fashion from Drag Race, mm-hmm. um, and Dragula, holy crap, have We've you watched, watched a few Dragula? episodes of that. We've watched a few episodes of that, and I have to admit, I'm kind of a terrible, like, person, unless I, like, binge watch a show, I kind of will watch two episodes and then forget about it, so. Be gentle with yourself. <laughs> There's so many people who do that, but, like, that's sort of where I get... Because, I mean, you look at a queen like Aquaria, and it's someone who eats, breathes, lives fashion, mm-hmm. like, who has gone to fashion school, um, and the concept of silhouettes, like, I feel I learned, I have learned more from watching Drag Race obsessively and Dragula than I did in my Design One class in undergrad, just because they become pieces of living artwork. Oh, totally. But, um... Yeah, just going off of what you're talking about in the design for the daughter, I do you feel like we're in this moment of like wearable technology and like identity? Like I feel it's merging in a way where like we are our Apple Watch, mm-hmm. we are that one statement necklace, and it's sort of like this desire to move forward, but also this pull back to nostalgia mm-hmm. with like Stranger Things or Mad Men or even like Game of Thrones to like a pre I don't know like modern like I don't know what I'm saying like fantasy worlds that are even further back well I think I, I think that 
like identity and fashion have always been incredibly linked. Totally. And I think that now, especially with technology, as like particularly social media, we have this oh ability gosh. that's been, you know, non-parallel that, you know, we've been able to be like, this is who I am and what I look like. And I have 10,000 reference points versus you know like when i was in high school we had like teen beat magazine and mtv and like same five, yeah you know, we had like yeah. five or six I really feel like we're contemporary <laughs> with each other yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know there were like five or six really strong viewpoints that there was like the way your neighborhood dressed there was the way famous people dressed there was the way you know or even the of, state you're in yeah and so i think that there was kind of like there were fewer points of access to difference Sure. Whereas now we have kind of more of a space to kind of say, oh, I love what's happening here and I love what's happening right. here. And I can take those pieces and try them on. And if they don't work for me, I can let them go. Whereas like yeah. I feel like before it was kind of the, the need to conform, at least for myself, I shouldn't speak for like society in general, sure. but the need to kind of conform and be like, oh, I fit in with my peers. And I, I don't know that that's necessarily the same vision for people today whether you're a teenager whether you're you know well I, I I'm 34 35 in August and I remember and like I just recently I just recently in the last year found out that I'm kind of I'm autistic but I'm on that like Asperger's autism cusp mm-hmm. which is a very interesting so like I'm in really great company like Albert Einstein and right Hannah Gadsby and <laughs> Greta Thunberg and Anthony Hopkins and, like, Elon Musk, like, whatever. <laughs> um, but it really makes you reassess. You have so many plush toys. And so what people are doing is <laughs> River going back and, like, choosing another toy. But they're always, like, the gayest toys. And I, I think that's fine for me to say because I'm gay and I'm thinking that my dog is a drag queen. And uh, he cannot tell us otherwise. <laughs> um, uh, I'm so sorry. What was I saying? Um, oh, oh, these blue. So I had these blue suede moccasins mm-hmm. when I was seven years old, and I grew up in Wisconsin, and I think I was just like way too fashion forward for like those basic bitches to understand because I was like, I need, I need these blue suede <laughs> moccasins. Seven years old, right? And. So my parents, and we didn't have a lot of money, and they were, like, 25 bucks at, like, a tourist shop. Mm-hmm. So, like, it was a lot of money for us. Uh, but I ended up throwing them out because kids made fun of me because I wore the same mm-hmm. thing. Right. Time after time, because autistic people are like, this is the thing I like. I'm going to stick with the thing I like. Yeah. Like, routine is, like, a thing that is a brilliant and beautiful thing. Um, and so, like, I feel like it's just now that I'm rediscovering my fashion sense mm-hmm. and this thing of like no like you can you can do it thrifting or you know like at lower and you know like at your targets or your clothes oh, totally. or whatever or ebay even because i'm a huge vintage person as well you just need to know your aesthetic like you need to yeah. follow your aesthetic delight do you know the artist robert spellman I by chance. Not. So he was one of my professors at Naropa. He's this beautiful artist. He makes these huge, like, submarine paintings and fruit. And he... What are you doing, bud? You, he is ripping up a pillow. He is ripping up a pillow. I am That's so sorry. That's not a toy, buddy. That's not a pillow. <laughs> Get the monkey. 
the monkey. The monkey, this is a costume designer. We need to treat her with respect. We, we will be replacing the duvet. River. River. Thank you. Um, aesthetic delight. So he would, he would have us do this. He, would, he taught us meditation at mm-hmm. Europa. And he, what he did is he, he took an 8 by 10 of cardstock and he cut out with an X-Acto knife a one by one inch window in the middle of it. Okay. And so he had this exercise that was basically in following and cultivating a sense of aesthetic delight in that he would give us a bunch of different magazines and our assignment was to go home and choose patterns without words on them okay. and like mix them together to be like, what is your aesthetic like? There are no wrong answers. And I feel that we don't cultivate that in people anymore, really, right? Like we do it because of Pinterest and Instagram and all the things, but to get a teacher to give that assignment, I felt like that was pretty unique. And so I guess the long rambling thing is leading to a question in that, like, how have you developed and what do you do to cultivate your aesthetic delight? Because I see that your design (laughs) space is so incredibly designed. Like, so that you can take a nap if you needed to. (laughs) Um, You can draw, you can construct, you can read for research. Like, what is your creative process like? (laughs) Uh, well, I mean, it's always interesting in that, you know, the answer is in this house, but then yes. I, I love to shop, so there's always that dichotomy oh, of it. heard. <laughs> um, so there's always that balance. I think that it's, and I mean, now, I mean, I'm, I'm married, and we've been together for quite some time, and so there's always that blended aesthetic that, like, this is our home, so. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Even though this is more my space, it's certainly, you know, a shared space, and sure. so it's kind of. You know, if I had my way, this house would look different, but there's definitely parts of it that are, like, completely my aesthetic and some that are completely sure. Brenda's. And so, yeah, it was just, I mean, and we both have a very similar kind of vibe. We love that, like, shabby chic and a little bit of, um, you know, kind of nostalgia. And so there's a lot of pieces Same. that are, he like... He has found the one squeaky <laughs> toy in the house. It's a big birthday it cake. You. It's a good time. Um... So, yeah, I think that it's kind of, you know, it's just a blow, and it it builds and changes and grows. Like, we've been in this in this house for almost um, almost six years, and so it was kind of, we just redid this room, like, a year ago, and so I feel like it kind of grows and changes as you grow and change, and, yeah, I feel like it, when we decided to redo this room, I was kind of ready to give up some of the things I had, like, carried around since grad school and undergrad, that it was like, I don't need to have these things. Like, these were right. important tools for me when I was in... At that moment in time. ...grad school, and, like, I needed them, and I used them, but now they're just taking up space in my life, so is this a place that I want to hang on to, or do I want to kind of move on and, and find something new? And so, you know, Brenda and I kind of put our heads together and and came up with, you know, kind of our space. And I think that that's just... You have to kind of look at, like, what's the moment, and... What's the purpose and what's the what's the budget? You know, whether it's the emotional budget or the actual physical budget, you know, and and decide like what kind of.
space you want to create for yourself and know that it's not permanent. So <laughs> Yeah. I think that's the kind of nice thing. Well, it's sort of the thing when people are, how many times have you been watching House Hunters and you're just like, it's a color of paint, yeah. it's a color of paint, it's a color of paint. Like yeah. that's sort of the running joke with House Hunters, oh, totally. right? And people don't realize that I think a lot of a lot of times we don't do what we need with our space because we feel we don't have the time. Yeah. And it's so counterproductive because our space is like the most important thing because it creates the energy of our reality. Yeah. And I think there's also, I mean, and I know this comes from my own personal kind of need for perfection <laughs> yeah is that it's it's hard for me to have a space that's not complete or hard to have a space that's not exactly what I wanted um and so like sometimes there's there's that growth process of like oh it's not exactly what I wanted but it's not that I dislike it so now I just have to kind of right. see how I grow with it and also accepting that like it's okay that it's not perfect we can change it and what even is Perfect. Yeah. Right. That's a whole therapy. Well, yeah. Thing. Well, yeah. And I feel like series perfection is like the enemy to creativity sometimes. One of my favorite things about you is that you are a costume designer who will also photograph yourself in costume as well. And you've wow. won some contests. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit while sure. we hear all of the squeaking? <laughs> I. You want to take that to another room? I have been super fortunate. Hi. Yes, it's a birthday cake. I've been super fortunate to kind of have a dress-up partner in crime um, with my friend Kevin at work. Um, And we both laugh that, like, Halloween is our favorite because it's, like, our chance to do the things we want to do. You know, and a a lot of costume designers don't like Halloween, but I feel like so much of my creative life is collaboration with teams on projects that are predetermined and that there's, you know, when you have a script, it can only be this thing and, you know, and for Halloween... You feel pretty prescriptive. Yeah, for Halloween, we can be like, what do you think about pop art zombies? And we can make that a thing. And so it's really fun that we get a chance, you know... um, to kind of dress up and play and it reminds me of like the amount of effort it takes to kind of be in character and what I'm asking actors to do so it's a nice reminder of like oh yeah this is this is a lot and I can't just expect someone to like put things on and roll with it that there's discussion and creativity and building that comes from that collaborative you know relationship and so it's always nice to kind of be on the other side of that and it's just, I mean, it's just fun. I'm, I tell people that, like, I get to play dress-up for a living, you know, so I better practice what, <laughs> what I do on myself at least once a year, so. Oh, that yeah. makes me so, it makes me so happy. It makes me so happy. Um, what's your process like designing for a show, like, when you come to it? Like, you get the ask, like, you sign the contract. What's your next, what's, after you sign the contract, in that space between signing the contract and that first table read, what does that space look like for you creatively? I definitely, it's a lot of text-based things. Like, I certainly read the play with a super open mind, and I feel like I read it like a novel. You know, that you're like, it's not about kind of figuring out, like, oh, this is a change, and this is this. You just kind of read it to feel story. Right. Understand the story, to feel it, and see what's going on. And, and then... Um, 
And then it's kind of going back through and kind of finding what's the hook? Like what makes me excited about um, telling this story? Right. And then once I find that, it's kind of taking that hook and figuring out what the visual connection is. And sometimes it's something completely unrelated to the script. You know, that it might just be an inspirational image that it's like this feels like this story. Yes. And it might be color. It might be, you know, it, it could be any number of things. And find, kind of finding that hook and then the visual language that goes with that yeah. is always kind of like the jumping off point for me. And then that's a great place that I can take kind of to that first table read because you don't want to get too invested on oh. your own thoughts and choices. Because I'm so glad you feel like that. <laughs> there's a team of people and, you know, someone may come in with an idea that you're like, oh my gosh, that's 10,000 times better than what I was thinking and is such a stronger connection. Let's take that and run with it. So it's just kind of finding your, your spot. And then the more conversations you have and the more research you look at and the more you know, kind of pieces of the puzzle that come together, you kind of figure out what your contribution to it all would be. I love that you say that because that's the same, uh, it's very similar to how I have built a character from uh, from a very young age, which is I always do a collage. Mm-hmm. For most shows, For I did, to be honest, for the veterinary assistant and the bear, <laughs> I did not feel I needed to do a collage. I will yeah. say that. Um, just because I feel like the characters were very... They were pretty straightforward. They were very pedestrian, and I say that in the best way because at least I tried to be very careful about like not spoiling the bear because the oh, bear, yeah. I thought, was such a great sight gag. And, like, yeah, that assistant was very much like an expositional... Like, I feel like the veterinary assistant set up the joke and the bear was the punchline. Yeah. Um, but for all other characters, like, I'll go really deep. And I think it's because of the way, like, the way autistic people build emotion sometimes is by modeling after others. And so I really want to be finding that vibe, like, you are talking about. Like, who is the energy? Like, who am I right. trying to emulate? Um... And, like, when I did, when I played Little Red Riding Hood, I always do a Spotify playlist, too. And so it was really interesting talking to my Acting One students this semester to be, like, because there's this this phenomenon in autism that I'm fascinated by called echolalia, which is the idea of, like, you'll repeat a phrase that someone else says so that you can sound a bit more colloquial. Okay. And so that's why I'm like, oh, my gosh... Show me all the drag race that you can, because then I, at least I can, you know, say, you know, I can know what Miss Banji means, and I can do a tongue pop like Alyssa Edwards, um, and and that will get me some social collateral in some circles. Um, but with Little Red Riding Hood, I would listen, so I had this, like, Spotify playlist that was, like, Werewolves of London, you know, somebody's watching me. But the two songs I kept going to again and again and again were both Taylor Swift songs. Oh, and it was funny. It was Red, and I Knew You Were Trouble When You Walked In. Nice. And I would just be like, and it was really interesting to do, we sort of did like an illuminated text thing where I had never seen the music videos for either one of those songs. Uh-huh. And I did this thing where I was like, okay, so like Little Red Riding Hood in Into the Woods, like, she's had this encounter with the wolf, and she's not sure how she feels about it, and then she sings this song, 
Um, and then we listened to both of the, um, we watched both of the music videos, and I was like, I want, they did their, they did an exercise in their acting journals, which was fascinating. I'm like, pull the dramaturgy. Like, what is, like, loving him was dark, it's like, dark red all alone, or mm-hmm. like, like a smoking gun. I'm like, there's all these amazing metaphors that Taylor Swift uses because she's a very evocative writer. Like, mm-hmm. say whatever you want about Taylor Swift. <laughs> she writes evocative lyrics. That's totally. Right? Um, you can get a police officer to sing it in his car. There's something to that. Right? And so <laughs> it's very much like finding the way in. And so like for whatever reason, the second time around playing Little Red Riding Hood, Taylor Swift was the way in for me. It wasn't that way the first time around, um, but I think, like, the older I get, the more I'm just, like, let people have their processes, mm-hmm. you know, like, why do we judge people so hard for the things that they love? If you love your pumpkin spice latte, <laughs> it does not make right. you a basic bitch. It makes you a human that likes pumpkin spice lattes. <laughs> And if that $4.50 brings you some joy at 8.45 on a Monday, like, god damn it, get your pumpkin spice latte and screw the haters. Sorry, I'm like, I'm a little, I'm a little loopy because I have, I have, I've been at home nursing some injuries and so it's very nice to talk to a human being. But get back on the design thing. So you start from a text-based place and a really visual place. Do you do collage image boards or do you go right to that design sketch? You know, it depends on the show. Like for contemporary pieces, I feel like um, those I kind of tend to go to like Instagram and more kind of recent pieces. Pinterest? Yeah. Oh, I love Pinterest. It's fantastic. You can kind of go down the rabbit hole of that and, and, you know, you just kind of find your, find your way in and, you know, this will spark this and that will spark that. And right. so for contemporary pieces, I really do kind of focus on the collage aspect because I can say like, here's, you know, here's the dress I'm thinking right. and it will look like this picture. And I feel like with historical or fantastical pieces, it comes from more of either a research based, especially for historical to say like, this is what we're thinking, you know, we'll start here and build it up. Um, and for fantastical, it's kind of a combination of like, here's contemporary style and historical style. And then here's some artwork that smash those together. And, right. you know, so I think that it's, it all comes from like gathering images and then kind of editing out the pieces that you're interested in. Yeah. Cause it's like, Oh, I like the collar from this dress and I like the texture of this, you know, painting and, you know, kind of figuring out how those pieces go together. And I definitely think about it like a, a puzzle and then I love to kind of draw it out because I think drawing is one of my favorite things um yeah I've loved to do it ever since I was a very little girl and and feel like that was totally like my art form that I felt most confident in and I loved doing it and so I really love rendering pieces and kind of getting that opportunity to like take everything that I've found and and squash together and and put it on paper and say like this is this is where I see us going so this is how gay I was as a little kid. Um, I would spend hours, hours at the public library poring over Al Hirschfeld sketches. Oh, uh-huh. And, like, trying to mimic them. And then also, like, all the big actresses of the day. So, like, I have all of these sketches that I've done of Nicole Kidman, Jillian Anderson. <laughs> 
you know, like all of these queer icons that like were were hitting my radar without me knowing why they were hitting my radar in the mid mid to late nineties. Um, but yeah, I'm not great at like generating something. I'm good at mimicking oh, something. Mm-hmm. So like my mother, who's a visual artist, would say, your line work is very... So, like, I'm good at, like, replicating a line. Gotcha. But to build something from scratch, not so much. <laughs> not so much. Um, do you enjoy constructing costumes, or would you rather pass the design off to someone who's, like, Ballywick is really the construction? Oh, I definitely... I mean, I I definitely feel like I have been so fortunate to work with people who, like, that is their art form. They're so right. much more talented in that than I could ever dream of being because they dedicated their lives to it. You know, that that's their career path and their passion, and it's so wonderful to have that teamwork that you can kind of, you know, rely on their skill set and just know that you're like, I'm going to give you this two-dimensional piece of paper and then these measurements for a three-dimensional person, and you're going to magically make it happen. And it's so fun to kind of have that discussion and discourse. And you learn so much just by inviting other people in the process. I mean, drapers and tailors have taught me more about costume construction than I ever learned in undergrad or grad school, just because they've done it and they know it. And, you know, as soon as they kind of clue you into, like, oh, right. hey, this will be a good, um, this will be a good component. <laughs> you know, to add to or to think about or to work with. And then you can kind of, you know, put that in your own toolkit. And as you move forward, be like, hey, I learned this thing. Right. And, you know, it kind of, the skill set kind of spreads and grows and, and develops with other people. And, you know, you can't create in a vacuum. So the right. more, it's kind of like the more voices. It's all sort of artistic osmosis a little bit, yeah. too, I feel like. For folks who might be listening, who might not know, probably most folks know what a tailor is, mm-hmm. but in terms of the context of professional theater, what, in a sentence or two, would you say that a draper does versus what a tailor does? A tailor creates uh, traditional menswear, menswear um, and a draper creates traditional women's clothing. And in this day and age, most people kind of have their foot in one pool or the other, but it's it's more of a skill set that you kind of learn a little bit of this and a little bit sure. of that. So there are very few drapers who don't know something about tailoring and very few tailors who don't know something about draping. Sure. Uh, we're in your design studio, and I'm seeing there's a lot of Muppets, Sesame yes. Street <laughs> references. Would you say that that was one of your earliest aesthetic influences? Oh, I loved the Muppets. I thought they were hilarious, and I thought Sesame Street was great, and I thought puppeteering was amazing, and I just really loved how wonderful the Muppets all were to each other. And Right? They were funny and Silly. I mean, like, there there are so many things about that show that you watch as an adult, and you're like, oh, my God, this is so stupid, and I love every second of it. And I feel like they really value community care, too, Yeah. Right? Like, I if mean, someone was struggling in the community, they all people lived in showed that up. big house together, so, you know, <laughs> <like>. <laughs> Yeah, I just, I think they were a really wonderful influence of, like, you know, just kind of, like, how to let your free flag fly and be a good person, and, yeah. like... Did you know that Stephalopagus was a man? I didn't. I, I didn't feel either. like I totally missed I that episode. Either. I learned that later, and I was like, I understand it, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> I'm not gonna invest a whole lot in it. I also feel like that's the test of like who was a real theater kid. <laughs> if that makes any sense, like I feel like the true theater kid like bought into Big Bird actually seeing yeah. Snuffleupagus. Um, 
who would you, if you had to say, like, if you took the BuzzFeed quiz and got your ideal selection of, of a Muppet character, who would you, who, who is your, uh, Patronus when it comes oh, to the my Muppet God. world. It's, it's Prairie Dawn with like I had a friend okay. tell me this once and I was like, it's totally her. It's kind of a deep cut. There. Yeah, she's I mean, <laughs> she is like a rule follower mm-hmm. and she likes yep. to be in charge and she gets frustrated and is real sweet at times and I feel I was like, I feel you. <laughs> I am just like I wish I could have a more original one, but I am just I am so Miss Pinky. I just <laughs> like I know how gendered it is, but like I don't care. Yeah. Like I just the Bellas, the attention. I need a beta and a partner. <laughs> there will be leopard print, there will be diamonds, there will be boas. Yeah. But I feel like that's why the Muppets were so great, is that they made they make sure that kids can see themselves, and I feel like as that fandom has evolved over time, like they made sure that there are creatures and characters with disabilities or who have HIV/AIDS, and it's I think people don't realize how important the educational programming and educational theater that we see growing up. It shapes who we are. Totally. And I think it just, it opens doors. I mean, I remember when I was in, I think I was in grad school, there was an episode um, where the Muppets... <laughs> hey, River. <laughs> where one River's of, telling us to wind it down after this question. <laughs> where one of the, um, one of the Muppets had a, a parent in jail. And yeah. they talked about that. And that really hit home for me. Right. Because we had a friend um, yeah. who, um, his daughter had just gone to jail and she had a, a daughter who was trying to figure it out. And I was like, I was like, I don't know how to help this situation at all. I have no context of this. Right. Right. But I saw this and maybe. And I think that that is a great place that we can all kind of tap into. Like, I don't get this at all, but here's a place I can be empathetic and learn something and like right. who can complain about that well i think you're kind of a crappy <laughs> person if you try it i think it's a great i think it's kind of a great to know, go to know out a note to go out on because it feels like we're both people who really value empathy and i feel like that's <clears throat> in short story in the world and i feel like empathy's not a weakness is a superpower and i think that's what the muppets have told us i think that uh, what dogs teach us. Oh, totally. And I think that um, at its best, that's what costuming gets to do, right? Like, co- costuming gets to sort of indicate the inner life and the empathetic proclivity of a character. Oh, yeah. I mean, any time that you get to kind of help tell someone's story, what a powerful place to be. You know, I think that's what the draw of what we do is. It's like we get to share these amazing stories. And sometimes they're uplifting and inspiring, and sometimes they step on your neck, and yep. you know you don't know what you're supposed to do with that information. But I mean, it's such a visceral, guttural work that we do that, mm-hmm. like any opportunity to kind of be part of that, I can't pass it up. So, <laughs> uh, so last question for you, two part question: okay. Are there any show like do you have a bucket list of shows you want to design for? And if so, can you put out one or two of your top picks? And um, what is the single 
piece of advice you wish that someone would have given to you earlier on in your career as a costume designer? Okay. Bucket list shows, oddly enough, one of them was Midsummer, and yeah. I get to do that this summer at Colorado Shakes. Amazing! So that's kind of fun. Yeah, I feel like that's one of those paper product projects that I've done like since, you know, high school. It was like draw yes. a picture of what this character would look like and I've loved that story that it's just so, so iconic. It's just so bizarre and it's so know, big, right? Yeah, and it's just I mean, it has moments that are just so stupid and I do love stupid humor. So, you know, there's parts of it yeah. that are just great. And then there's love and silliness and fairies and who can go wrong. Um, so I'm excited that, like, that's one of the ones that's definitely on my bucket list of, like, oh, that's fun, and I get to do that. Um, I think I love the American canon, and I would yeah. love to do it in non-white ways. <laughs> I mean, or, I think it would be yeah. really fantastic to be part of productions, like the Denver Center did a streetcar named Desire with an all-black cast, and I think that more ways to tell American stories with American voices that aren't always seen and heard Yep. It's fantastic. So if I were the right designer for a project like that, I would love to do something like that. Um, as far as advice I wish I had been given, um, definitely it gets better. <laughs> right. I think grad school was really, really hard for me. I wanted to quit every other week. <laughs> and I think that it was it would have been great if I would have known it's okay to hate parts of this and it's yeah. okay to know that this will influence and be important in your life, but it's not defining in your life and it will get better and feel better. And, you know, and I think that's everything. I mean, like high school was that way and junior high and everything else. And yeah. I wish that I could have embraced that a little bit more. Um, and I think the other piece of advice I wish I would have understood more is advocate for yourself. And I have a really hard time doing that sometimes. Same. But it's, I mean, I don't know if part of it is just getting older or <laughs> being in the industry a little bit longer, but it's definitely just like you have to say what you need to be successful. And whether that's tools, whether that's support, whether that's space, or whether that's like this project is not a good fit for me and I appreciate you coming to me, but I have to say no to this. Like that, I think I never understood the power of what yes. the ability to do that was. Yeah. And I, I wish I would have learned that sooner so that I could be more successful with it sooner in well, my life. It goes back to that whole thing that they tell you at the top of every airport, you know, like airplane <laughs> speech that we, you know, ignore and put our air, AirPods in. But... You have to put your gas mask on, or your air mask on, oxygen mask on, before you put on other people's. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, especially as, as folks who are coded as female in the industry, uh, you will get a lot of people who indicate to you that that is not the case. Totally. Um, and it's not right. And yeah, you absolutely... I. My big motto in 2020 is going back to Stanislavski and his concept that the actor must be relaxed oh, mm -hmm. to do their best work. And so it's like, what are the impediments? What are the impediments in self-care sometimes is not a bath bomb filled evening. Sometimes self-care is saying, thank you so much for thinking of me. Yeah. Stars don't align this time. Keep me in mind for other projects. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that can lower your blood pressure Twice as yeah. much as 
a bath and a glass of wine. <laughs> Uh, that being said, uh, thank you so much for being a guest. Oh this my was such gosh, a fantastic thank you conversation. So much. I'm so glad to have you in our home and to meet River. I'm getting puppy snuggles right now. Yeah, so. amazing. So, folks, make sure to catch Megan Anderson's Megan Anderson Doyle's work on the main stage of Colorado Shakespeare Festival. Mary Ripon, Midsummer Night's Dream, directed by Carolyn Hayworth, opens in June. Glam rock, 80s-ish concept, right? Yeah, it's kind of like 80s fun. No, thank you. No, thank you. Sorry, River and I are working it out. Um, Yes. Yeah, it's kind of just 80s fantasy fun and, you know, a little bit of nostalgia, a little bit of rock and roll. I can tell you right now, it's going to be the ticket of the summer. I hope so. It's going to sell out. I, I just know right now with the talented cast of folks that they have. The puck is going to be signing an ASL, yeah. so especially folks, if you have friends who uh, are hearing impaired or know ASL, it's going to be a wickedly fun, delightful, whimsical, badass night of theater. Yeah. So make sure you check that out in the rest of Colorado Shakespeare Festival season. Um, and then anything else that you can announce yet uh, where folks can see your work later this year? Yeah, Small Mouth Sounds at the Arvada Center opens in just over a week um so that's a really exciting contemporary piece that has a bunch of great folks and you know that black box rep is always an exciting uh, family to be part of so i'm very excited that that's happening and then after midsummer we go right into odyssey with so with the same friends from midsummer i'll be there for the odyssey so yeah that'll wrap up my summer in a really fun exciting big way well we can follow you all over the world this summer (laughs) with csf megan thank you so much for being a guest absolutely thank you